0: It's no secret to listeners of the Brett Easton Ellis podcast that I'm a big fan of The Great Courses. If you still haven't signed up yet, now is the perfect time because you can get a free month of unlimited access to The Great Courses Plus. The Great Courses Plus offers on-demand video lectures across hundreds of topics presented by award-winning professors. You can learn about anything that interests you, whether it's literature, history, art, photography, and you can learn at your own pace, anytime, anywhere. The Great Courses Plus offers thought-provoking courses on all topics, including the one I recently watched called The Art of Storytelling, which shows you how effective storytelling incites questions and dialogue like a work of art. It also reveals the best storytelling techniques that work in any setting. As one of my podcast listeners, when you sign up today, you'll immediately get one month free of unlimited access to all of their lectures. Check out The Art of Storytelling or whatever interests you for free. I want you to start your free month today, so go to thegreatcoursesplus.com/brett. That's B R E T. Remember, thegreatcoursesplus.com/brett. The following program is a podcast1.com production. I'm Brady Sinellis, and you're listening to the Brady Sinellis Podcast, and I'm here at the Podcast One Studios in Beverly Hills with my guest, the filmmaker and photographer, Larry Clark. If you are a smart person so traumatized that you are still referring to yourself as a survivor slash victim of something, then you need help. And you should probably contact the National Center for Victims, especially if you are, say, a writer, still unable to cope to the point that you will not, cannot Go see Nate Parker's slave epic, The Birth of a Nation, with his depiction of slave violence and rapes because Nate Parker was acquitted of a rape charge from 1999 while he was a college student. Then you need to see a shrink immediately and stop writing editorials in The New York Times about how you are feeling triggered by this resolved 17-year-old event. And in essence, victimizing yourself. But victimizing oneself is like a drug. It feels so delicious. I get so much attention from people. It is what defines me. It's what makes me alive. I'm showing off my wounds so you can lick them. Don't they taste so good? Don't they make me so important? If you define yourself through a trauma that happened to you, and that is still a part of you, You are probably sick and in need of help. If you cannot read Shakespeare or Melville or Toni Morrison because it will trigger something traumatic in you and you will be harmed by the reading of the text because you are still defining yourself through your self-victimization, then you need to see a doctor. You either need medication of some kind or some kind of immersive therapy or maybe a dozen EMDR sessions. If you really seriously were so offended and felt that Lena Dunham had really committed some kind of subtextual thought crime and was actually pro-slavery and lynching and reenacting the false accusations of white women towards black men in the antebellum South and throughout history when she made her comments about Odell Beckham after the Met Gala, then you are never going to be a happy person. If you feel you are experiencing microaggressions because someone asks you where you are from, or can you help me with my math, or offers a God bless you after you sneeze, and you feel that all of this is some kind of massive societal diss, then you need to seek help, professional help. The widespread epidemic of self-victimization, defining yourself in essence by a bad thing, a traumatic thing that happened to you in the past, is in fact an illness. It is something you need to resolve before you're ready to reenter society. What you are doing to yourself is harming yourself and seriously annoying others around you. The fact that you can't listen to a joke, view imagery, and that you categorize everything as either sexist or racist or homophobic, whether it is or not, and therefore harmful to you and you just can't take it, is a kind of mania, a delusion, a psychosis that we have been coddling, encouraging people to think that life should be a smooth utopia built only for them and their fragile sensibility. In essence, staying a child forever, living within a fairy tale. What should someone do with their past pain and trauma? And yes, it's difficult at 17 to move past a childhood trauma and pain, But not really at 27 or 34 or 49 or 56. But pain can be useful. It can motivate you. It often is the building block for great novels and music and art. But it seems what people don't want to do now is learn from their past traumas, navigate them, place them in context, understand them, break them down, put them to rest and move on. It's hard, I know. But it needs to be done, and it's something one should aspire to. When I first started hearing professional victims demanding that things shouldn't be posted or shown or posts should be blocked or people should be punished and shamed and blamed or fired because they offended the victim on some level, I'd laugh at how ridiculous it all was, but then get queasy when a certain faction would try and appease the victims, elevating them to hero status, in fact. But now a backlash is beginning against PC victim culture perpetrating itself onto the rest of us instead of letting victims wallow in their self-victimization, proudly asserting it, demanding everyone pay respect to their pain, a pain that honestly no one really cares about except other victims, because a victim is not active, a victim is passive, a victim is someone who can't move on, and so it's doubly frustrating to listen to their complaints. A sign of strength and stability and integrity is to deal with and moderate your pain and trauma instead of flinging it out at people as a badge of honor. A sign of strength is about getting help. It is not about blaming your perpetrator, your parents, your bully, that asshole, years and years and years often after the fact. It's about acceptance and moving the fuck on. The University of Chicago sent a letter to its incoming freshman class this summer, the class of 2020, stating in essence that there will be no trigger warnings or safe spaces allowed, that there will be no crackdown on microaggressions, and visiting speakers will be allowed to speak without being boycotted because a fraction of the student body doesn't agree with what the speaker represents or the ideas that the speaker may want to talk about. This announcement was greeted by almost everyone with a huge sigh of relief, a moving forward, a progression. In not coddling students and keeping them victims and babies, and instead making them adults dealing with the world that is mostly hostile to your dreams, your ideals, and restoring the university as a place where young adults can stop shutting things down, but building themselves up by empowering them with ideas that are different from their own. Getting past the narcissism of childhood and adolescence and moving them toward a place where they are capable of dealing with both sides of an opinion, a thought, an idea. Expanding their horizon, not narrowing it. Protest and questioning the status quo is a vital part of being an adult, and it should be encouraged. But clamping your hands over your ears and stomping your feet and demanding safe spaces from ideas that are different from your own – Getting people punished, fired, banned, shamed, because you felt as if you had been victimized is becoming, it seems, maybe a thing of the past. Maybe there's a chance the kids will actually grow up. I was thinking of this because of the Nate Parker controversy. Parker is the actor, writer, director who was accused of rape in 1999 when he was a student at UPenn. He was acquitted, and yet this has been brought back into the conversation with the release of his film, The Birth of a Nation, with many feminists writing they are now refusing to see the film because he was acquitted of a rape in 1999. Add to the fact that the woman he was accused by committed suicide four years ago, and you have a delicious sentimental victim narrative. And the Lena Dunham mini controversies since the overreaction epidemic seemed to swallow these two up without placing things in context or even looking at facts. Nate Parker was acquitted. Lena Dunham was milking the insecure millennial narcissistic shtick that she's famous for. That's pretty much it. These reactions toward Parker and Dunham were reminders of the infantilization victim culture that was and is still to a degree everywhere, and places everyone in the role of victim. What about all the women Nate Parker didn't rape? He was still accused. What about all the young black men who were lynched due to attitudes not unlike Lena Dunham's? Maybe it's all amusing. Maybe it's not a problem at all. Maybe it's all just entertainment. Everyone's a racist. Maybe every man is ultimately a rapist. Whatever. But there is a childlike attitude toward the world in this kind of over-emotional lashing out and the culture of blame. It almost seems at times as if kids are running the world. Sometimes it seems as if the culture is based totally around feelings of victimization with little or no adult talk. Just my feelings, as if feelings are facts. Feelings are not facts. Keep the world childproof. Only nice thoughts and opinions. There are things you cannot say. If you vote for Trump, you are a bad person. The cost plane of the culture, which seems at times to be on the wane and sometimes it doesn't, This childlike narrative was nowhere more apparent to me in cultural circles than when the tidal wave of enthusiastic overreaction to the Netflix series Stranger Things swept ashore earlier this summer. Stranger Things was an 80s-inspired mashup of Stephen King and Steven Spielberg and John Carpenter, and that took all of its cues—emotional, artistic, a worldview—from cultural artifacts that are about 30 to 40 years old without updating them— It was a pure and spotless act of loving appropriation, and that viewers responded to in a delirious fanboy way. Even though this pastiche was influenced by sci-fi and horror, the show wasn't particularly violent or scary or sexy or adult, and what it seemed to offer people was comfort and childlike nostalgia. It was a Xerox of a Xerox of a Xerox, tame in a way that made it seem geared more toward kids than adults, though many Gen Xers responded with a kind of wild enthusiasm for the show. It was one of the only cultural artifacts that briefly brought seemingly everyone together. I knew almost no one who didn't have an opinion about it, and the reaction was upbeat and positive, with only a few Stephen King, John Carpenter purists as the rare naysayers. Those of us who had actually grown up and read every Stephen King book and seen every John Carpenter movie at the time of their release and could describe each scene from E.T. intimately from memory— Sensed the hollowness of Stranger Things almost immediately. The series was encased in the amber of a previous era without slyly updating things. The fact that Stranger Things solely tried to be exactly like something made from 1982 was what got people excited. It was an unambiguous pleasure, and that's what made them praise the show, because there certainly wasn't anything in it that signaled a movement forward, a kind of artistic growth or progression. It was slavishly dutiful and lovingly detailed, and treated the tropes of 80s content with not an ounce of derision or criticism or reevaluation, And because of this, the show seemed dead on arrival to me by the middle of episode one. There seemed to be much more suspicion and criticism of a much better TV series called The Night Of that aired over the summer on HBO that was a thoroughly adult drama that was riveting in terms of its tonality and mood. It was actually a very simple procedural that could have been, as many of its critics noted, half of an episode of Law & Order. But instead became an almost overwhelming take on not just the way the American justice system works, but the coarseness and economic brutality of American life circa twenty sixteen. It felt incredibly new, and its cinematic neutrality made mundane scenes almost breathtaking. Yes, the Night of was the best movie I saw in twenty sixteen so far, and the amount of expense and care spent on this almost ten hour movie paid off resoundingly. The great Frederick Elms was the DP, and the show looked better than any American movie I've seen this year. rapidly catching up to the mood and atmosphere of the cinematic experience and surpassing it, and with a few of the best performances of the year, including Riz Ahmed, John Turturro, and Jeannie Berlin. The Night Of also treated the audience like adults, because it wasn't the logic of the murder mystery that even mattered. What was so modern about The Night Of was in the way it used a very simple procedural as a launching pad to describe a landscape of compromise, futility, and the mixed messages that resonate daily in American life. The real villain is not brought to justice. Our hero is thoroughly broken down in the end, and there is the sense that he might not recover. People are mysteries and contradictions. And there were sometimes complaints about this on social media, especially compared to the fan adoration of Stranger Things, where characters acted in a set way based on artistic notions created 40 years ago. One of the most vocal complaints about The Night Of involved the young lawyer for the defense, Chandra Kapoor, who she thinks in order to help her client falsely accuse of murder and get him to testify on the stand, has to recklessly smuggle him drugs so he can steady himself due to the drug habit he's picked up in prison. And because there have been hints that she has become attracted to him, kisses him at one point, a legal no-no true, but at this juncture in the show, she suddenly became about a thousand times more interesting and complicated and compelling And yet people in social media were outraged that she didn't follow a pattern and were shocked this young, attractive, smart female lawyer would actually do this. And it was considered a creative betrayal. The actress Jessica Chastain actually went on Twitter and said that the actress playing Kapoor, quote unquote, deserved better which is an example of what is wrong with so much of the phony, aspirational, ideological narrative people are enthralled to in the culture. Give Iago a backstory explaining why he has it in for poor Othello. Please, I don't understand Iago. Why is he doing it? Stranger Things felt much more safe and contained than the night of. It was locked in the past and there was nothing to get upset by or honestly get that excited by either because you knew how it was going to turn out. The night of was often enraging as it was enthralling because it was messy and everything didn't get resolved and most people became compromised by their choices. The night of seemed made for adults. Stranger Things seemed made for kids. Kind of kids? Was it the kids who populate my early work or Larry Clark's world? Or are the kids just scared adults who need the comfort of an earlier era in order to feel safe? And I've been thinking a lot about this because I knew that Larry Clark was going to be on the podcast and I've been haunted by some of his work for years and definitely was influenced to one degree or another by the photographs in Tulsa, the book of photographs that made Larry Clark famous or infamous in 1971. And certainly it was a reference point in the shaping of my sensibility. Tulsa is a series of black and white photographs taken between 1963 and 1970 of kids in Tulsa having sex, taking drugs, and playing with guns. And what makes the photographs in Tulsa so powerful is that Larry Clark is a participant, not just a voyeur. He had sex with young people. He did drugs with them. He included himself in the photographs. He was one of the young people, a precursor to Nan Golden and Robert Mapplethorpe and later Ryan McGinley. But these photos also heavily influenced everyone from photographer Bruce Weber, filmmakers Gus Van Sant and Martin Scorsese, as well as myself. And it's impossible to overestimate their influence in popular culture. Larry Clark gained later fame when he directed the genuinely shocking 1995 AIDS drama Kids based on 19-year-old Harmony Korine's first screenplay, About 24 Hours in the Lives of Skaters in Manhattan, that was also a ticking clock suspense movie and that introduced Chloe Sevigny and Rosario Dawson to the big screen. It's hard to believe that a small $1.5 million independent movie could have caused such massive controversy as Kids did in the summer of 1995, But we were still in the high watermark for independent film, and movies were still important and talked about. Watching Kids Again recently, I was amazed at how gorgeous and assured the filmmaking was. Clark wanted to make the great American teenage movie, and he shot Corning's script with a massive cast and a stunningly beautiful quasi-documentary style that feels real and improvised, even though the whole movie is exactly scripted made about $20 million worldwide. It's an AIDS movie, meaning it definitely took as its concern the main topic of the day. But it would be very instructive to see this movie on a double bill with Jonathan Demme's humanist liberal melodrama Philadelphia that came out a year before. Or maybe more instructively, a double bill with Amy Heckerling's Clueless, which came out the same summer. Kids is profane, a genre movie, a thriller, vibrant and alive and obscene, and it does what the best movies do. Reminds you that you're watching something secret, something you're not supposed to see. The movie is teeming and alive with teen sexuality. And Kids was the beginning of a fascinating filmmaking career that included the pornographic and violent Ken Park, which I caught recently on a bootleg DVD that someone let Me Borrow for 24 Hours, and is a legitimately shocking, beautifully made film, co-directed and co-shot by the great D.P. Ed Lockman, who also shot Less Than Zero. His other films include Another Day in Paradise, Was Up Rockers, and Marfa Girl. Um, your 2001 film, Bully, is uh, your masterpiece. I just watched it again and was thrilled by it, as I always am when I watch it. It takes the aesthetics of kids even further and blurs the line between art and pornography, and, and it's arguably the sexiest, toughest movie about American adolescence ever made. What was depressing the other night was realizing that kids or bully would never get made now on the scale, that they were made and get released theatrically in the way that they were. It's just a fact. We can lament it. We can move on. But... Bully contains one of the most honest and disturbing portrayals of male-adolescent friendship I've ever seen, the alpha dog aggressiveness and homoeroticism brought to the surface. And it's realized with a great and anguished performance by the late Brad Renfro. But everyone in Bully is at the top of their game. Bijou Phillips, Michael Pitt, Nick Stahl, a brilliant and fearless Rachel Minor, all part of a group of kids having sex, getting stoned, and dreaming of murder, The kids in early 1990s South Florida see bullying as a gateway to murder compared to millennial kids who see bullying as a gateway to victimization and suicide. And Bully is a slice of death movie. There is an almost biblical sense of horror and anger in Bully as it rushes to its terrifying climax. The murder that occurs near the end is almost unbearable, as it should be in its casual savagery. And then there is a kind of fury that is implicit in the filmmaking and the tone as the movie moves past the murder that is so caustic that I was wondering, where did this come from? And what attracted you to Bully and what inspired you so much about the subject that you
1: ended up making your greatest film? Uh, Don Murphy, the producer, uh, had read Bully. It's a great uh, investigative reporter book. Uh, I by, highly recommend it. I've read it too. Yeah, yeah. Um, by, uh, by By uh, by Jim Schutz, and um, the book is brilliant. Great book. Um, and so Don had read the book, and and bought the rights, and had the rights for um, for a couple of three years, I guess, um, but couldn't find the right director. He was in a, a hotel room one night traveling and turned on the TV. And I think Kids was on. I think that that was the film that was on. And uh, he didn't know who made the film. And he, and he, and he uh, came in after the beginning of the film and just saw, like, a, 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 I don't know how far into the film that he, that he started watching. Uh, but as he's watching it, he says, Whoever made this film, I want him to do Bully. So he, 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 he found out about uh, who, who, who made kids. He called me on the phone, cold call, and uh, told me he wanted me to uh, direct the film and then sent me the book. Uh, and then um, I said, okay, yeah, yeah, this is, this is a good one, but we need a script. So he had this screenwriter, this young screenwriter, uh, who I won't mention his name, Write a screenplay. And so um, I I flew out to California, and uh, he's writing a screenplay. And um, he's saying things like, and the kid, the the guy's a kid, he's in his 20s. Um, And I'm talking to him, and um, I immediately know that this kid is is Republican just by talking to him. And he's saying things like, well, you know, in the screenplay, we can't uh, have, uh, you know, the, the homoeroticism of um, um, of Marty and Bobby Kent because we'll lose uh, the teenage boy audience. So we can't do that. And, and, we, and we can't do this because we're going to lose this audience. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, man, no, 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 this no. fucking idiot is trying to write for the audience, you know, in mm. this brilliant book. And that's what's brilliant about the book. So anyway, um, he finally gets a screenplay um, well enough that I can shoot it. Because if, because because this, uh, this has happened on many, many of my films. Just give me a screenplay, there's enough there, and I'll go with it, you know, because I'm going to change everything, right. you know. So um, it was really hard to um, get the money for Bully because of the casting, right? You know, they want names, names, names. And uh, they got every name in the book for um, Rachel Miner's role, but I had met Rachel Miner, who'd, who'd never been in the film. She was a uh, had a, a, she was had been like a child stage actress, uh, and her father is um, uh, a stage director, and so she had been in a lot of plays uh, and had been a, a, a successful play on Broadway. Uh, so she'd been an actor all of her life, a really great trained actor. And, and I just thought she'd be perfect for the role. But no one had heard of her. So, the, so, uh, so there was all this pressure on me not to cast her, but I insisted on her. And then for um, Bobby Kent, I had a casting call in, in, um, here, in, here in L.A. And everybody and their brother came. And uh, I didn't like anybody and um, uh, Ashton uh, Ashton Kushner came uh, from the TV show and, and I didn't know him uh, uh, and he bounced in and um, he was just like he was in the TV show just the nicest, happiest guy in the world you know <laughs> and um, and I liked him a lot but but, uh, but uh, for, not for Bobby Kent and uh, um, so anyway so uh, Nick Stahl comes in and Nick Stahl comes in and he's all hunched over and Kind of looking down, he won't hardly make eye contact, and uh, he's like he's 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 like in this shell, you know, like James Dean and like Rebel Without a Cause, you know. He's like you know like that, and uh, all hugging himself and stuff. And uh, you'd never think of this guy in a million years as as being Bobby Kent, but I wanted him, and he's just like this this skinny kid, you know. And um, totally unlike the Bobby Kent in the book, who there was a weightlifter and all buffed up, right? Um, And actually Persian. But there's no way that they're going to let me cast um, um, true to the uh, character, a Persian kid, uh, uh, to play Bobby Kent. So I got so much heat over, uh, over, um, over Nick Stahl. This fucking writer... Even even um, uh, called or wrote to to, uh, to uh, Canal Plus who was putting up a lot of the money that I was out of my mind, you know that uh, that, uh, that Nick Stahl was like you know just so wrong for the role and uh, and he called uh, Don Murphy and he's just pissing and moaning about it, you know. But I insisted on Nick Stahl, and so um, to cut through the chase, it's a long story to cut through the chase of all people, we got the the go ahead with Bijou now Bijou Phelps was was like known she was like the Paris Hilton before Paris Hilton right she was a club kid who was 15 years old out there uh, in all the clubs at 15 years old fucking everybody and uh, Uh, producers and uh, that I know and old old men were (laughs) fucking her and shit and everybody was fucking her and I just found a disgusting man you know and the first time I met her she came to me into this club and she uh, sitting down next to me uh, put her arm around me took the cigarette out of my mouth and started smoking and uh, started talking to me and um, hugging me right and uh, kind of feeling me up and uh, hadn't acted and But that name, because she was in the paper every day for being a club for doing nothing, that name got us the money, got financed. And um, I had um, wanted to cast um, really a great actor now, famous great actor. Uh, what's his name? Uh, he was in uh, that movie where he was, uh, he had a police radio and he was chasing the, the news and getting there first and moving the corpse around. Jake Gyllenhaal? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yes, yes, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So, like, Jake is a teenager. Oh, my God. Jake is a teenager, uh, but he's not a name yet, Right. right. Yeah, uh, so I was going to cast Jake, and I said, "Jake, man, I want you to have the role, you know." And he, and he came into my loft like twice and hung out with me and my girlfriend. And uh, uh, and Jake's great um, to this day. You know, when I see him, I I love Jake. But um, uh, they wouldn't cast him. And then uh, Brad Renfro's name came up. Uh, and I saw the movie that he did um, where he was with uh, uh, the Nazi guy, with Ian McAllen. Oh, Pupil, right. at yeah. Pupil. Yeah. So I see at Pupil, and I say, wow, this is great, you know. So they, they say uh, no to um, Jake and the yes to Brad Renfro and uh so i so i told jake and jake said god damn it i lose every role to this guy <laughs> and uh, and then jake went on to be this gigantic yeah. star and i'm so happy for him and uh, he's such a good actor um uh, so anyway so we all go down to florida uh rachel um um bijou everybody right uh, nick Stahl, uh um, bradman and the other girl uh in bully uh, who's so beautiful Kelly Garner and Kelly Garner had um, uh, these great teeth and in the movie you know her teeth are all crooked and Mm -hmm. you know it was just beautiful and the, the most beautiful breast in the whole world right and she's only like 17 or something 16 or something uh, and I actually have 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 her naked in a naked scene with her and Michael Pitt laying in bed naked in, in, in the film, which was a big coup to be able to do that scene. But anyway, so, so we're down there. And Brad Renfro, uh, so I'm talking to Brad on the phone, and um, Brad needed to be 18, right? Um, um, And he's going to be 18 in a a couple of months, right? So I'm talking to him on the phone all the time and talking about the role. And um, he says, yeah, I'm working out. I'm getting in shape. I got a trainer, blah, 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 blah. So when it it comes time, I drive to Knoxville, Tennessee, which reminded me of Tulsa. It looks just like Tulsa. uh, To pick up Brad. And I drive to his grandma's house where he lives with his grandmother, and it's his eighteenth birthday. It's the day after his eighteenth birthday, and he walks out of the out of the. I pull up in the car. He walks out of the house uh, without his shirt on, with both arms out like this, with blood running down each arm, and he's bloated up and looks terrible, terrible. He looks like he was forty years old. And he said, I fucked up, it was my birthday, and I started celebrating, and he'd been shooting coke, right? Yeah. So I stayed down there with him in uh, um, um, Knoxville for about four days, and um, he's just shooting coke constantly, and I have my camera, so I just keep photographing him, and he didn't mind at all, and I photograph and photograph, 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 like all these pictures of him, I got a hundred pictures of him shooting. So after the fourth day, I, my movie's sunk, right? I mean, there's nothing to do. So I said, you know, uh, I can't be stopped. So uh, I said, uh, so one, uh, the fifth morning or something, um, uh, I said, Brad, where can I go get a, like a, a special cup of coffee? Do you have like a special coffee shop in town? He said, yeah, I'll show you. And he jumps into the car. He's got a T-shirt and, t- and jeans and tennis shoes on. And I gunned it. And I gunned it straight to Florida. I kidnapped the son of a bitch. <laughs> and he's like, let me out, let me out, you know. I can't go, you know, and, uh, and I gunned it. And and so uh, on the drive down, he's kicking coke, and he's having seizures, epileptic seizures. And then he passes out for hours and hours and hours. And I stopped in, like, um, Ridgeland, South Carolina, to see my sister for uh, for the day, for an afternoon. And it's really hot. And uh, Brad's in the passenger seat, just passed out, drooling. And I go, and I visit my sister for a few hours. And I say, this is Brad Renfro sitting here. And and I come out. And then four or five hours later, I leave. And he's still like that. So, so we get to Florida. And he's kicked the coke. It only takes about three days to kick coke anyway. It's out of your system quickly. And so... Um, I said, man, you got to lose a little weight, man, you you know. And uh, so he he gets presentable enough for the film. I get him presentable enough for the film and make him work out a little bit. Get him a trainer and stuff, which he didn't as half-heartedly did. But he's in shape enough for the film. He has a beautiful face. He's such a great actor. Yeah. So uh, during the shoot, we have people watching him 24-7, right? Uh, we did on the informers as well yeah yeah and so he um he <laughs> he uh he made friends with all these uh, little uh, people that had these little small yachts tiny little, little boats that would come and like uh, anchor next to the motel we were staying in there was a swimming pool and everything and he would make friends with these uh, guys on the boat and get their liquor right and drink liquor and stuff and get fucked up you know while we're watching him uh, and I'm wondering how is he fucked up and then I found out how he got fucked up and, and then uh, halfway through the film he escapes he jumps out of the second floor window and uh, and goes into um town in Hollywood Florida which is right next to uh Fort Lauderdale right they're like right next to each other um uh, Hollywood Florida where uh, where bully uh uh took place uh, and gets all fucked up and gets some drugs and I don't know what all drugs he got, coke and weed and, and drinking and drunk, and and sees this yacht, this big yacht and decides he wants to go for a cruise. So he gets on the yacht, he hot wires it, he revs it up and guns it and takes off as fast as he can, uh, but forgets to untie the rope. So you know, so the, so the mm. boat yanks back. And it fucks up the the yacht, and the owners come, and he gets thrown in jail. Uh, so he's in jail, and we lose a day of shooting or two days of shooting. Uh, and um, I go down uh, with uh, three or $4,000 in my sock, and I bail him out. Um, and he's all dehydrated and fucked up. And I drive him straight to the beach because uh, the scene that, that we have to shoot is him and the next all Marty and Bobby Kinn, coming out of the surf holding surfboards, meeting uh, Rachel Miner um, and your Phillips for the first time, and he just nailed it. I mean, he's so great and it. nailed it yeah. and, and so amazing. Um, and 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 we made the movie and we made the movie on like no money in twenty three days. I made that movie. And, uh, I was supposed to have 40 days, and then we get ready to shoot, and I only have 30 days. And I'm really getting nervous and pissed off, because we're all down there, right? The crew, the cameras, all the actors, everybody's down there. And, uh, then this co producer, um, Don Murphy's a producer, but, but he's in Hollywood, you know, he has nothing to do with the making of it. Um, and so this co producer is down there a real idiot man um uh and says you only have 23 days i said it's impossible to shoot this in 23 days and so i started thinking they don't want me to make this movie so i said fuck you i'm going to make the movie so so we shot it and it steve gainer my dp brilliant dp it was his first big feature he'd done a bunch of uh, videos for mtv and shit but uh, uh i like him a lot and so we shot in 23 days, never saw dailies, never saw a frame of what we were shooting. I never saw anything until we're back in the editing room. Um, and and we're running from set to set, uh, and I'm pushing the kids like crazy, man, like crazy. And I got great performances out of him. I got a great performance out of a BG who can't act a lick and was terrible. So I had to figure out ways around that. To to make her good, and I made her so good Which is great. that all of a sudden I said, when this film comes out, she's going to get all these jobs, and the director's going to have no idea, you know, you know, you know that she can't act a lick and she's crazy as a bug. And um, and after the film, she got some big roles. She did uh, in films, and they cut her out of them. <laughs> they cut her out of them because 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 nobody could have done what I did. Uh, and Nick Stahl was great. I mean, yeah, so you know, committed. great, and and Brad Renfro was just perfect, and Rachel Miner was great, um, and Kelly Garner was great, and everybody was great, um, and how I did it was uh, visually. The reason the movie works so good is, is visually exciting. Because it's all this dialogue. It's the same story told over and over and over again. And half the book is the courtroom drama of just the same material. So, so in the film, I read the courtroom drama a hundred times and distilled it down to that one line where, um, where uh, Leo Fitzpatrick, who was great too, um, who was telling kids uh Leo uh, is in court and said, you know, it wasn't for this snitch, you know, and then they'll say, No, your fault, your fault, yeah. your fault. Yeah. And then they realize that the judge and all the galleries are listening and this really happened. So what I did was um I tossed the script because the writer, um it's all in the book. The writer got a hold of the actual tapes of the kids talking to their lawyers. So every word in the book is in in the movie, in the book, is exactly what these kids said. Mm-hmm. So it's all true. True, true, true to a fault. And so um, I think the scripture way And we shot from the book. And I had the book in my hand. And every night I would have my assistant copy a passage from the book. And those are the lines they had to say. They couldn't improvise. Brad wanted to improvise. I said, no, you have to say these lines. So he would study and memorize the lines. And and he did it. He did it. He did it. it. I don't think he ever read the fucking script. (laughs) But but he did it. And we shot in 23 days. Um, And um, I saw a film after bully came out a big hollywood film and then i saw bully and i realized why my films are are, are fucking great and these other films are so bore fuck is visually, that you watch Bully, you're never going to see any movie visually that exciting. You have two people standing here talking to each other. One of them is is reciting a page and a half or two pages or three pages of dialogue. And the other person is standing there listening and has two or three words to say. And I make it visually exciting you know, uh, watch and see, you know, and every scene. Um, I got with my DP, Steve Gaynor, and we tried every shot known to film, every single shot known to film. We used, and then when we ran out of those, I said, okay, these are shots I would never use. I would never use pull focus. I would never do that. I would never do that. I hate that in films. We did those. And then I said, Steve, what what are things you'd never do? And he told me, and I said, Well, do those. So so that film has every different kind of um, of film shot that could possibly be in any movie ever made. They're all in that one film, and uh, that's that's why it works so well. Uh, and that's why um, uh, the film's so good. Uh, uh, because I, because it's the actual dialogue. Um, and I'm a visual artist. That's what I do. And um, a lot of good filmmakers aren't, aren't visually uh, good at all. And they make good movies, but visually they're dead as a doornail. So uh, I'm glad that you like Bully because it's a great film. Thank you. So I was thinking
0: about controversy as a gateway to success. It has happened to me, certainly Tulsa, certainly Kids, which was arguably one of the most, if not the most, controversial mainstream movie of the 90s. You've been accused, as I have, of seeking controversy. But I'm not sure if true controversy can bloom if the work isn't totally sure of itself and was never courting controversy in the first place, meaning that there is a kind of fake controversy where someone is trying to be controversial and which you can always smell a mile off. And then there is the pure work that shocks and offends people for simply being itself. It's just simply in its DNA and that upsets people and feels genuine. I can't look at your work and feel that you're courting anything but the purity of your vision. There are certainly artists that are definitely provocateurs, and I've been saddled with this for a long time, and so have you. How, how do you acknowledge this, or how have you acknowledged this throughout your career when this is kind of brought up to you, that you're just a sleazy, exhibitionist, provocateur? Do you
1: even acknowledge it anymore? How do you deal with this? It's interesting what you were just talking about, because um, Tulsa was totally pure, uh, and it was done for no other reason than I was practicing my, uh, practicing photography. I was practicing my photography with my friends in this secret world, because back in the 50s, Eisenhower was president, and uh, it was all supposed to be, uh, you know, mom's apple pie and picket fences, and there were no drugs, no alcoholism, uh, no um, sex, uh, none of this was supposed to be happening. But I saw it happening all around me because I was doing it, you know, gang bangs, uh, you know, drugs, uh, you know, everything. But it was a secret, secret world. We didn't tell people what we were doing. And uh, the people involved were my friends, and I was one, one of the guys. And I just happened to have a camera in my hand. And nobody from the outside could have come into this scene. It was a secret world because it was against the law and the police uh, uh, knew about it and were always busting in and uh, chasing us and stuff and uh, and so I started figuring out from my friends uh, with a rangefinder camera I started out with a Nikon SP and then I went to a Leica and it wasn't like a single reflex with the mirrors crashing now they're making the noise very very silent the Leica, Leica makes almost, almost no noise uh, here's a new M9 I'm looking at one right now with you. Uh, this is a new M9, and and I always shot film. I never shot digital until about a year ago. And like I made a camera, a digital camera, an M9, uh, which is like the old uh, M6s or M2s, which is what I used. And after a while, you never hear it. And we were in small rooms, uh, so all the pictures were made in small rooms. And I was like, you know, a couple of feet away from the people, you know. Uh, so it was very very close. Um, so the pictures are very, are very um, intimate that way, but it was natural. Like wherever was your camera, mm-hmm. right? So and never never thought that anybody would ever see these photographs. Never thought they'd ever be published. Never thought it would be a book until um, 1971. And I had all these photographs through the years: 62, 63, 68, 67, and. I went back and I laid, laid it out as a book, and I knew what was missing. I knew exactly what was missing, and I knew that if I went down there, I didn't know when it would happen or where it would happen, but I knew these certain things would happen, the last part of the book. I knew these things would happen, and I knew that I would have to be there when it, when it happened. Were those the more controversial
0: pictures, or were those the more kind of scenic, uh, more innocent pictures that are in Tulsa? Uh,
1: The first half of the book, uh, people die, and people die in the second half, but uh, uh, it's a circle. It begins with us when we were young, and then it ends with the next generation of people when they were young, so it's like a circle. It just keeps repeating itself.
0: You know, it's just so amazing how influential it was and how it became this kind of holy grail. And what I always wanted to know was, were there any photographers that were influencing you at that time? Were there any cues that you were aspiring to? Was there anyone out there that you felt
1: influenced by? Yeah. Uh, I was influenced by Lenny Bruce Mm -hmm. and very early Bob Dylan because uh, Lenny Bruce uh, was trying to talk about the truth and they crucified him for it. They took away his club license. He couldn't work, you know. Uh, he became an uh, incredible junkie. Uh, well, he always took drugs, but it got worse and worse and worse. And Bob Dylan, the early Bob Dylan, said, kids, you can, like, do what you want to do, you know? you know. You can do anything that you want to do. And that was like, uh, you know, and his voice, of course. Uh, so Lenny Bruce and Bob Dylan were my influences. And also, there was a uh, photographer that had worked for Life magazine uh, W. Eugene Smith, a very famous uh, um, photojournalist, great photographer, who talked about the truth and tried to get the truth and He would take assignments for life magazine and um, which was a weekly. And would spend three months on a job, or want to take a year for a job. And of course, it's Life Magazine, you know. And they want him to go shoot it, and he wanted to really d- delve into it and get at the truth. And he used to write these um, diatribes in the magazines, and like the popular photography magazine, even uh, about getting at the truth, you know. And Life Magazine, you know, wouldn't let me, so I quit Life Magazine. And the truth, the truth, the truth. And so, um, I was influenced by that also, and I wondered why the great photographers always had to pull their punches. they would go someone like Gene Smith, who was so great, uh, would go could only go so far, and then there was the rest of it couldn 't be shown. it was forbidden and I said, why can 't you show everything? why can 't I show what 's going on around me? You know the life i 'm living?" And so I started photographing to see things, to see photographs that I couldn't see anywhere else. If someone else hadn't been doing it and I could have seen the photographs, I wouldn't have had to do it. But I felt uh, that I I wanted to see things that hadn't been seen before uh, in photographs um, uh Uh, And that's how it all started. Um, uh, I would have liked to have been a writer, but I wasn't a writer. I would have liked to have been a sculptor or a painter uh, or a filmmaker, but I wasn't any of those things. All I had was this camera in my hand, so I used the camera. But never, never in any of my work through all the years, and I've been working, what, 50 years, uh, have I ever tried to be controversial or tried to be shocking or tried that. I've just never uh, known censorship. Uh, being an artist, it's never occurred to me that there's things that you couldn't do. It just wasn't in my um, um, DNA at all.
0: Was it automatically successful right out of the gate? I mean, I imagine it was to a degree because it was so controversial, or did it take some time before you realized its impact? Was the impact really initial and Tulsa, startling?
1: T- Tulsa came out in 71, and it, was, uh, it went off like a bomb. I remember, like one review, um, Ad Coleman in the, in the Village Voice said uh, it comes out of nowhere. Yeah, and then he said something. Um, uh, he referred to a um, a cartoon in the New Yorker. I forget the uh, the, the artist, but um, uh, it was a picture of a, of a person in hell taking pictures with a camera, and yeah. it was a cartoon. And uh, uh, Alan Coleman said, uh, uh, referred to that cartoon in Tulsa and said, You can't photograph hell from the outside. You have to be in hell. I always liked that quote a lot.
0: Tulsa is published when you're 28 and you don't publish another book until you're over 40, which is Teenage Lust. You direct a Chris Isaac video when you're about 50 and then you make kids when you're 52, 53 and it's so good and assured that one wonders why you were not making films previously. I guess the question is what took so long and the other
1: question is what were you doing during the 70s and the 80s? Well, I I went back to Tulsa uh, to see if anybody was mad at me and wanted to kill me and to take the heat, you know, and uh, uh, I certainly wasn't going to stay away from Tulsa like I was some punk and be scared that uh, people were going to be mad at me. There were a few people mad at me, Uh, but I went back and um, nobody killed me. But anyway, I went back to Tulsa and just continued the life and got into the outlaw life and uh, got a girlfriend who was a prostitute and a drug addict and, She'd go and fuck doctors or give them a blowjob and get scripts uh, uh, for narcotics. and for, uh, uh, Then there was methadrine, so she'd get prescriptions for um, uh, desoxone, which mm. was the big, like, Andy Warhol speed, drugs, mm. Mm. great, because it was pure amphetamine, yeah. pure methadrine on a little pill. Yeah. And you could soak that pill in water and then crush it, and then shoot it, and then draw it through cotton and shoot it, man. And it was like pure, pure method. no nothing else in it. And so uh, we did that for a, a long time uh, until they finally, I guess, cracked down on that. You, uh, you couldn't get it anymore. Uh, and I was like an outlaw, and I was I went to the penitentiary for 19 months. I shot a guy in a poker game. Uh, he, uh, I won the game. He wouldn't pay. And he, uh, he pulled a gun, and uh, um, so I left with, with, uh, with my girlfriend and went to the car and got a gun and came back and shot him in the arm, you know, thinking it was the right thing to do. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, I thought, I, I thought that's what you did, you know. It was the normal thing to do. And when he snitched on me and the police got me, man, I mean, I was shocked that he would snitch on me, you know. I mean, uh, I thought this was normal. Uh, so anyway, uh, so uh, those years went by, and then I got out of the joint. I came, uh, they wouldn't even parole me into into Oklahoma. They parole me to New York. So I um, did my parole in New York, and I had to go see the parole officer uh, up by 42nd Street. And, and then after I went to the parole officer, I went up to 42nd Street, which was still 42nd Street. And um, uh, in '78, and uh, started making the 42nd Street photographs <laughs> because I saw these kids hustling, right? These young teenage boys hustling, um, and there were girls too in processes, but all these young boys, like uh, you know, uh, you'd walk by and they'd grab their crotch, you know, and uh, you know, give, give you the give you the look and stuff, and, and I'd never seen this before. It was like jesus christ what's going on here so i went up to a kid and i started talking to him and he told me what was happening and so i would make photographs uh and then take them back and then go home and print them and take them back a couple of days later and give them to the kids these beautiful 11 by 14 uh, um, prints uh that are in the book teenage lust some of them quite a few and uh uh the typical thing would be they would say gee thanks larry Jesus, thanks a lot, man. That's great. Then they'd fold it in fours and put it in their back packets. So, <laughs> So that was, uh, that was that. But uh, then I I lived on the parole. Uh, a gallery asked me to, uh, to join them and to, to show Tulsa, which had never been shown in New York. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is 1979 was the first time it was shown in New York. And it came out in 71. And then... Um, I always wanted to make film, man, but I was too fucked up to do it. No one's going to give uh, a practicing drug addict, crazy man, money to make a a film. So uh, I saw Gus's film, Drugstar Cowboy, and I'm laying and I'm watching it. Someone had called me and said, "Go see this movie. This guy's on your turf." And so I went to see the film, and I said, "Man, I've got to make a film and show these guys how to do it," you know. And uh, I like Drugstar Cowboy. Uh, And I later met Gus, and uh, he's a great, great guy. When I met him, I told him uh, the story. I said, I saw your movie. And I said, man, you know, you're on my turf. i got to make a movie. You know, I really want to make a film. But I don't have a script. I don't have nothing. He said, well, just do it. i just make a movie. And I said, but I don't have a script. He said, you don't need a script. And I said, but I don't have this. He said, you don't need that. I said, you don't have that. You don't need it. He just said, just go do it. Uh, So I did. And I thank you, Gus.
0: Well, there was certainly, you did mention, for example, Bob Dylan. You mentioned Lenny Bruce. Were there filmmakers that you loved? Were there movies that really influenced you yes. that made
1: you want to make movies? Who
0: were some of those filmmakers? Who were some of those yes. some Absolutely. Of
1: the movies? Absolutely. Um, when I was 18, I left Tulsa. I had to get out of Tulsa. My whole goal in life was to leave Tulsa because uh, uh, of the drugs. And, um, you know, I just couldn't. I mean, I've been, been shooting amphetamine for Three years straight, I hadn't slept for three years. Uh, I started drinking like half bottles of whiskey straight down, just to take the edge off, so maybe I could rest, or maybe sleep, or pass out for a half an hour. And so that was no good anymore. And everybody was going to the penitentiary, and everybody was growing up, and all the guys went to the penitentiary, and all the girls became prostitutes. And uh, I had to get out, so I w- went to Milwaukee, and there was this commercial photography school there. And so when I got there, I spent the two years practicing photography. I took more pictures than anybody else by scores and scores, and uh, I mixed my own chemicals. I learned everything. I printed every different kind of paper there was, tried every kind of film there was. I mean, I really worked for two years doing nothing but practicing photography and hanging out with uh, the kids upstairs in the art school who were sculptors and painters. And two blocks from the art school was this uh, art house theater. And in Tulsa, I'd grown up in, like, uh, John Ford, John Wayne, Joel McRae, uh, Doris Day, Rock Hudson movies, right? Uh, never any foreign movies ever in Tulsa, except, I think, in God-Created uh, um, Woman. Uh, <laughs> <The> Roger Vadim. <laughs> yeah, Bridget Bardot, which mm-hmm. was such a controversy because it shows her lady on a table naked, and you see her tits, right? So that was, like, uh, outlawed. Uh, it was really controversial, but anyway, th- this theater was two blocks from the from the art school, and I went there one day, and just kept going back and back and back, and I saw all of the Bergman movies, and all of the Louis Malle, and all the Godard, and uh, one day in '62, I walked in, and there it was, John Cassavetes' Shadows, his first film. And so I saw shadows in sixty two in a theater, and I was just blew me away i 'd never seen anything like it, and nobody had ever seen anything like it and I walked out saying, "This guy sees like i see this there 's someone that sees like I see." And so that was my inspiration and influence. And I went back to Tulsa and uh, made all those photographs. And so uh, uh, John Cassavetes uh, and his first film, Shadows, and then all of his films. And the, my favorite Cassavetes movie is the Kalimba Chinese book. I bookie. love that movie, too. Kalimba Chinese book. I love that film. But Faces and um, Faces is, great. Uh, is, uh, is also great. And there's so many great uh, great films that he made. But uh, Cassavetes is... is uh, Uh, My favorite of all time.
0: Why the Larry Clark interview you just listened to seemed abbreviated, rambling, but abbreviated perhaps, or maybe you didn't. But there is only about 40 minutes of my guest, Larry Clark, and yet we recorded about an hour and a half with him. Those of us who were in the studio on that Tuesday morning, myself and my producer, Adam Thompson, knew that the conversation had kind of gone off the rails in the fact that it wasn't really a conversation between Larry and myself but really just Larry talking. And after the 90 minutes were over and I walked Larry out to an Uber I had ordered for him, Adam informed me that for each topic I brought up, Larry's responses usually lasted 20 to 30 minutes apiece, and that this is going to be a very tricky podcast to edit, perhaps the trickiest one yet. Yes, I was aware of this midway through Larry's first response about his groundbreaking book of photos, Tulsa, which was published in 1971 when Larry was only 28. And I initially brought up Tulsa because I thought we would quickly ground the conversation and establish how Larry became so well-known and um, is still a kind of godfather of cool at 73. He is one of the faces of Dior this season, and he was photographed at Paris Fashion Week uh, this year with the likes of Rob Pattinson and Michael B. Jordan and ASAP Rocky. And so I opened the door for Larry to start talking about growing up in the America of the Eisenhower 50s and about all of the people and the photos from Tulsa and what had happened to them. And suddenly it seemed 35 minutes were gone. This happened again. And I realized we were quickly running out of time. We had started taping at 1130 in Beverly Hills, and Larry had to be downtown by 130 to start hanging his installation at the UTA Art Gallery that was opening on Saturday in Boyle Heights. And there was so much I wanted to ask him, and time had almost completely slipped away. Every time I kept trying to move to another subject, Larry remembered something he had forgotten to add to his previous response, and another 10 to 15 minutes would evaporate. I am never going to tell my guests to stop talking and move on to something else, but at a certain point I had to interrupt Larry Clark And ask him about Bully, his 2001 true crime movie, his best film, which now that he had been redirected toward, he happily went into. Adam and I thought it would be best to move his recollections of the making of Bully to the top of the interview and then find a way to locate the most interesting stuff from the rest of the podcast into a coherent and linear listening experience that would follow Because while we were recording the podcast, often Larry was jumping backward in time, interrupting himself in essence, and suddenly adding and expanding details to an answer from 40 minutes previous. A lot of what Larry said was interesting, do not get me wrong. And a lot of it was stuff that very few, if any, listeners were going to be compelled by because of how intimately Larry went into detail about them. His drifting reveries unmasked the limitations of the podcast format itself, I realized. I would have loved it if we had all the time in the world to make it work, but I realized there needs to be more of a give and take between host and guest on a podcast to make it fully flow. It's a peculiar situation to have a guest on the podcast and then realize that the guest has hijacked the podcast, whether consciously or unconsciously, and I don't believe Larry did that. Larry is tough and opinionated. It's what makes him a fascinating artist, and it's also what makes him somewhat intimidating. I had never met Larry Clark, and since I was a big fan of his overall renegade anarchic sensibility, and at least three of his movies, Kids, Bully, and Ken Park. Ken Park, which I badly wanted to talk about, especially how he staged the sex scenes and got actor James Ransone to masturbate and ejaculate on screen, And so when Joshua Roth, the art lawyer of United Talent Agency, someone I've known since he was a teenager and who I met when I was writing a script for his uncle, the producer Richard Roth, about Roth's relationship with the influential fashion icon Tina Chow, who died of AIDS in 1992. And of course, that movie was never made. So when Josh called me up and asked if I could have Larry Clark as a guest to help promote United Talent Agency's new gallery, UTA Artist Space. I immediately said yes, and uh, yes, full disclosure, I am a client of UTA as well, and I want to stress I immediately said yes, because that doesn't always happen with a guest. Sometimes I have to think about it and wonder if it would be interesting to me as well as to the guest to come on the BEE podcast, if it would be worth it to have them on, but I knew a lot about Larry Clark and told Josh yes, though I warned him this is not necessarily a promotional podcast, meaning... I'd like to talk to the guests, but I'm not solely talking to a guest because they have a new movie or a new record or a new book or a uh, new art installation that's coming out. And I also told Josh that by the time Larry's podcast will air, the gallery will already have had its opening, even though the survey of Larry's work will be running there throughout the fall. Josh assured me that Larry completely understood this and just wanted to talk about his movies as well as his upcoming show and the state of the culture in this moment. During the taping of the podcast, as if he had forgotten to, Larry promoted his show at UTA Art Space, even reading from his notepad the date the gallery was opening, the times it would be open, uh, the hours, uh, the gallery's address. Adam and I cut that, as well as Adam wanting to cut a quick back and forth between Larry and myself about the current election, because the conversation was so quick and lacked any kind of context. Larry had suddenly shifted gears in the middle of a long answer he was giving, and out of the blue asked me something about the election, something about new polls that had been released that morning. And we started with our mutual disgust about the insane and biased media. So boring, I know. And then we both agreed that there were some things about Trump that we initially liked. Destroying the Republican Party, for one. Hello, anybody? His DIY campaign, um, the calling out of other candidates, super PACs during the primaries, his lack of religion, letting Caitlyn Jenner go to the bathroom in the Trump Tower, lying about everything just to piss off the media. Anything that pissed off the media was a good thing. And that was about it. Trump was punk in a sense. And the fact that he wasn't a politician was what made him exciting. Up To a point, and we did not get into the things that bothered us about Trump. And we briefly tracked Clinton's flaws as well. The wonk, the liar, the Washington insider steeped in bureaucracy, and it was all over in less than two minutes before Larry went right back into the answer he had been giving. So we cut it because it was so jarringly out of place. I liked it and wanted to keep it in, but Adam convinced me otherwise, and he was right. It just seemed weird. But then over 50% of my Larry Clark conversation ended up being edited out, so was it a big loss? Probably not was it even an interesting discussion? Not really, it was just kind of bizarre in terms of the context of this podcast and for those of you who might be interested, I am not voting for anyone in this election, and I cherish my right not to vote and Anyone who has followed me in social media in the last nine or ten years knows that I have rarely, if ever, mentioned Obama, Bush, Clinton, and only once or twice mentioned Trump. essentially, I'm apolitical I'm not that interested or invested. And no, little snowflakes, not voting for Hillary is not giving Trump the vote in California of all fucking places. And that's all I'm going to say about this for now. Maybe when I record a podcast next week with a filmmaker, Paul Schrader, we will get more into it, though I fucking hope not. And I am so tired and sick of this election. It's such stressful misery on a lot of levels that I cannot wait for it to end. Now, I want to reiterate in this little afterward I'm doing right now that I love Larry Clark, and I was influenced by the aesthetics of Tulsa as a teenager. He unrepentantly broke walls down, and he is defiantly an advocate against PC censorship that is now coming in waves from the left, which he has been the target of, as have I, though when we got our spankies, it came from the right. And not being able to say what you want to say and what you should be able to say pisses him off in ways that make him a First Amendment crusader. And yet we didn't really get there. And this was something I really wanted to get at, especially in a culture that seems to be mired down in ideology over aesthetics in a way that is often drowning out the actual art of things, not to mention discourse and opinion. Diversity is a good thing. Forced diversity is a bad thing. Great art cannot be made by a democracy. Great art cannot be made by a democracy. The virtue signaling of so many creators of TV and indie films today is ultimately a regressive limitation that argues against aesthetics and that is so lazily endorsed by the mainstream media. The taboo should be cool, but it's not because it's sexist or it's culturally reappropriating something and it's racist. The Freak should be moving the conversation further than the do-gooder groupthink ideologist. And I wanted Larry the Freak's opinion on other teenage movies, how he deals with young actors, the homoeroticism in his work, even though Larry is straight, on renegade photographers, his contemporaries like Maplethorpe, Nan Golden, Cindy Sherman, who all had massive retrospectives this year, and how he feels to be modeling for Dior at 73. But we got bogged down in Tulsa. Would I have preferred it to go another way? Sure. But the only fault, if fault is even the right word, is mine. Now, you may love this podcast and think, why is Brett over-explaining all of this? Why it went the way it did this week? But talking about this is also a way of taking a look at where the Brett Easton Ellis podcast is at this moment. Kind of a checkup, taking stock of where things are, which I have not yet done this season. This season has probably been the most successful it ever has been. Much to my surprise, because we were pretty much on a roll last November and December culminating in the Quentin Tarantino episode, which uh, up until then was our most popular. And we were getting our highest number of downloads at the end of last season, um, charting pretty high on the top-rated iTunes podcast lists. I took a hiatus of about six months from the podcast that I wish I hadn't, and returning with no expectations of moving back to that level, and yet somehow we have. I don't know why the podcast is popular. I'm extremely self-critical. But somehow it is, and yet a lot of people tell me I'm not playing it right. The main complaint about the podcast is that I'm erratic. Besides talking way too much and asking questions that are often longer than my guest answers, sometimes three weeks will go by without one being posted. We are aiming for one every two weeks now. Sometimes this is completely out of my hands as when a guest suddenly has to reschedule, and this happens more often than you might think. And since I like to prepare a podcast and refamiliarize myself with a guest's work, that means quickly replacing them is just not an option. Now, I guess if I didn't prepare so much, we could just have anyone on and shoot the shit about the game last night, or wow, the traffic on Santa Monica was pretty bad this morning, huh? Hey, how's that coffee? And when I was yet again on the Adam Corolla podcast at the beginning of September when I was... Uh, Promoting uh, this season of my podcast, uh, Corolla talked about being a guest on the Brett Easton Ellis podcast and how impressed he was by the amount of research I'd done on him. And it was supposed to be a compliment, but there was still the hint that you really didn't need to do that kind of research. And Mark Marin has expressed this as well, that the podcast format is really about just having a chat. The unspoken argument was that successful, really successful podcasts should be – Somewhat more spontaneous affairs and not so overly prepared. And Adams and Mark Maron's, which I have also been on, demand the kind of conversational give and take that this podcast admittedly doesn't have at times. As I've admitted, I talk an awful lot, though I don't think that much more than Maron or Corolla. And a lot of it has to do with the prep I do and what I want to talk about, uh, describing ideas and places and topics I hope to steer the guests. But maybe it would be easier if I just chilled out and recorded a podcast every week and just talked about whatever I watched on TV last night and what shitty movie I saw over the weekend. And then this brings up another hurdle. The BEE podcast started out as a podcast about film culture. And since film culture has basically died since the advent of this podcast, what is the podcast now about? Well, it has moved from a film podcast into an overall critique of the culture and filled with much deserving swipes against PC thinking, corporate culture, social justice warriors, and the censorship that the left now openly supports. Again, I don't feel political, by the way, when I say that as someone who is neither a registered Republican or Democrat. It just seems to me to be the logical truth that we are experiencing every day. And it's madness. The other thing is, how can I keep the podcast up to date when I'm only recording one every two weeks or so? Why am I extolling the virtues of the now-forgotten Florence Foster Jenkins, the Stephen Frears movie starring Meryl Streep, that I talked about on the last podcast, and which I somehow thought was going to be a hit of some kind when it had almost completely disappeared by the time the podcast aired and is never going to come back at award season? I missed the boat on that one. If I had talked about it the week it opened, well, maybe that would be a different case. Between the time this podcast began and where it is now, the massive shift occurred. A shift I fought for a long time because I didn't believe it was really happening. Movies versus TV. Well, that's over, too. TV, in a sense, won. Movies lost. There are a few movies coming out that I will want to talk about, uh, I'm sure, this fall with some of my guests. Among them, uh, Dennis Villeneuve's Arrival, Ang Lee's Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk, Tom Ford's Nocturnal Animals, Kenneth Lonergan's Manchester by the Sea, Damien Chazelle's La La Land, which is looking more and more like the front runner for next year's Best Picture Oscar, and the um, German comedy uh, Tony Erdman. But I feel right now more urgent about the beautiful minimalism of, say, Donald Glover's Atlanta on FX and Pamela Adlon and uh, Louis C.K.'s better things than I do about the bigness of any movie this year. And I have to admit that I have come around to the fact that TV is better than movies. And this is something the podcast started deriding in its second season, with me wailing about movies being better than TV, and that it's probably not going to flip for a long, long time. But we reached the moment where the culture, as well as the force of the medium, proved me wrong. So, the podcast is an organic thing, it's fluid, it keeps changing, and one of the reasons why I find it interesting to do, to keep it going, despite not making any money from it, are guests like Larry Clark, who move me into reexamining the podcast and what it means to me, even when it leaves me slightly flustered and stressed out.